Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. I'm so happy to be back after my uh, extended term away. And it turns out I wasn't missed at all. Mr. Armandino Batali last week sat in admirably and uh, stole the show with his stories. Uh, what a joy that man is. I don't know if you got to listen to last week's show, but if you didn't, go podcast it. It's, uh, he's awesome. He's such a beautiful storyteller. Yeah, he's a beautiful man. You know, oh. uh, in all of his glory, he is yeah. uh, now he's getting, I, I would guess, what, what do you think, he's close to 90, 85? Do you know, Terry? I don't. I don't remember, but it, uh, 80, yeah. So uh, if you have a chance, go listen to last week's show. Uh, Armandino is a Seattle treasure. We are here. We're going to do two hours. Uh, we're excited to be here. I'm excited to be back. Chef Thierry. I'm excited to still be here, mm-hmm. and I thank you for coming back. Now you know what it felt like while you were gone on yeah, vacation exactly. for a month in France. Yeah, exactly. Big job. We have a peak of the season strawberries. I tried to buy, you know, at the grocery store. I, I, I don't need a half a flat of strawberries in my life. Right. But at the same time, I bought one thinking that I would do something with it. And six days later, they're still sitting on my counter. Ooh, that's going to get moldy. Yes, that's true. Yes. But so... I vinegar, need, vinegar. I need, I need some ideas of what vinegar. to do with my peak of the season strawberries. I don't love pickled strawberries. I mean, the green ones are kind of interesting because they stay crunchy, but uh, vinegar, I don't know. You mean like make strawberry vinegar? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I wasn't talking yeah. about pickling the strawberry. What's the moldy? Just, uh, for some reason, there's not many just, options. Strawberries are dessert for me. I rarely use them outside of the dessert plate. Uh-huh. No, so, I get it. So t- let's talk about that today. Laura Kleiss is here from The Intentionalist. She joins us to talk about small restaurants that deserve your attention. And i got to say, honestly, success. I mean, the small restaurants are really what are thriving right now in my mind. And uh, I know that that has been a focus for quite a while, maybe the last five years. But we're going to talk to Laura about how that is going. Ice cream, do you need a churning machine? No. Really, that's your... Don't give away the segment. (laughs) <laughs> yes, no. I mean, there's so right. many cool ones on the market it's, out it's there. They're an expensive, answer. and they take up a lot of space. Correct. So the question and, uh, is, really, do you need it? Do you need one with like those ones you, where you put the bowl in your freezer and just do it in your KitchenAid? I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what people think about that. How to make finger-licking ribs good in your own oven rather than on the grill? I would just say no. Don't do it. There goes that segment. No, it's it's an argument. It's a conversation. Oh yeah, I'd say it's perfectly fine. Finish on the grill. You like to finish? If you're going to start the grill, I'm going to cook them on the grill. So let's talk about that. Man, we have so many things: perfect snacking food, handy hand pies. Lastly, we're going to play our rub with love tasty trivia challenge, where I fully expect, uh, after being gone for almost a month, a total win to get my butt kicked today. (laughs) Which is, uh, you know, no way to go into the no into. No way to go into the game feeling like you're going to get hurt. And I'm sure we'll have a great theme this week. I don't know. Will we? It's diverse. Okay. So uh, my taste of the week. Go ahead. I think I had this taste the last time I went to Scotland. You'd think I'd come back saying, oh, my God, haggis is the most wonderful thing that I've ever tasted. I remember you talking about it. Yes. Yeah. And that's not the case. Okay. Not the most wonderful thing I've ever tasted. No. Certainly not as bad as people make it out to be. Right. So haggis is kind of like an oatmeal porridge with the innards of a lamb cooked in a lamb belly. Um, I think I'd have a toast. So, I mean, and it's, it's interesting. It's a national treasure over there. And it's certainly not, it, do, it doesn't come across when you eat it as bad as it sounds. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so. Uh, it's I like th- tripe. It's the same thing. It's like. It, no, it, tripe is just bad. I think I think that 
the dish itself in the region itself yeah. is yeah. not as bad as we make it to be. Especially when another ethnicity takes over. Correct. So, for example, I was in a Thai restaurant in Scotland. Yeah. And you'd think in a Thai restaurant you wouldn't have haggis. Right. Because it's traditional Scottish food. But, no, I had Thai red curry haggis bonbons. So they mm. took small pieces of the lamb stomach, stuffed it, made that innards of the lamb and the oatmeal, mixed it with red curry paste, stuffed it inside the lamb belly, and then breaded it and deep fry it. <laughs> so I had Thai red curry haggis bonbons. I like the way you call them bonbons, too. That's well, that's what cool. they call them, bonbons. Sure, it's, sure. it's a very popular thing over there, little, little bits of haggis. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't mean to get off topic, which I've already done, but sticky toffee pudding. OMG. Oh. My... The, the club that we stay at over there north of Glasgow, oddly enough, makes the best sticky toffee pudding I've ever had. It's a date cake, right? Right. We're uh, serving some now down at Seatown because I'm so in love with it. I don't know that ours is as good as theirs, but it's good. I'm sure you could ask the chef to give you the recipe. <laughs> the chef, you know, I, well, that's another whole story. He's tired of hearing about this famous Seattle chef that comes to stay at his place. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's my taste of the week. Sticky toffee pudding with a little bit of vanilla ice cream. It's a, it's a charming. I want that. You know, and what's odd about it? They don't have dates in Scotland. No. But it's, it's one of those fruits that traveled. Chill. It travels beautifully yeah. when it's dried, right? So there you go. What's your taste? My test of the week is a beautiful Moroccan dinner at the Corson building last Sunday with a couple of friends. It was so nice. It was a um, correlation between uh, Villa Girada, you know, Mehdi, and uh, Corson building, the chef there, and, and the owner. And uh, the dinner was just succulent. The food was, oh. One of my best tests of that dinner was the eggplant tomato dip. At the beginning, you know, they take roasted, egg, they, they roast the eggplant in the fire. They have a wood fire outside, and uh, they make this dip of, like, tiny, small, diced tomato and eggplant. Oh, my God, that was so delicious. It's, to me, it's, what makes that dish is not just the eggplant and the tomato. is the spice that goes in it. And that's what one, you know, when you go to a country, you were just talking about the perfect example. You go to a country, any country around the world, and you, you go, oh, my God, that dish that I had there was so delicious. And then you have it here. And it doesn't taste as good. And it's the only difference is it's not necessarily the meat or the ingredient. It's the spice. What they put in there, those famous chasel anut, you know, homemade, made differently, obviously. And then we had a lamb, uh, um, lamb shoulder that was cooked all the way, braised down mm-hmm. with saffron. And we, I mean, how often do you braise a meat with saffron? Never. So you don't really, you're not familiar with that flavor, but when you eat it, you're like, wow, what is that beautiful flavor you have in there? Spices. So was it all with the Villa Gerada products? That, products and... That the chef used? Yeah, and also they added some dishes that, you know, just Moroccan dishes. But they had... It, it was just a beautiful dinner outside. And then the wood fire was outside. They were making the bread. They were making everything in the house. It was so delicious. Sounds lovely. I haven't been to the Corson building in 15 years. Yeah, I, it was my first time. Yeah. And it was, the setting is gorgeous outside. It's just a beautiful They're setting. keeping the garden up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And so that's down in Georgetown, by the way. If you've never been there, it's a little hideaway. And the woman who owned it at the time, the building, Dolly, was one of our summer campers here. And we took the whole camp team down and had a beautiful lunch down yeah, there. Yeah, it's a gorgeous so that's space. That's when Matt owned it. 
Yeah. Uh, up next, it's uh, peak of the season strawberries. What are we going to do with all these berries? But you better get them while they're here because they're heading out of town. Their peaches are going to take their place pretty quick. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. It's Cairo Radio. We're here weekly, or you can get our podcast. Uh, join us uh, anytime in your kitchen, in your garden, in your car. We are here. Chef, it's or yet, of the or season. Yet, or yet better, Mr. Douglas, you could actually buy a ticket and come to this show oh, like, live like we have today. All these, these lovely beautiful folks audience here we have today. here today. Very flattered. Thank you so much for coming this morning. And uh, you too can just go to TomDouglas.com, buy a ticket, and... Bring your friends. It's a great place to come and have breakfast. All right. So, uh, strawberries, uh, you and Pam in the break were talking about how to preserve them because, Pam, like me, you, it's hard to resist when you see a half a flat or a flat of strawberries. You can't just buy a pint sometimes. You just want to buy the box. No, because if you buy the pint, you eat half the pint before you get home. Right. If and you've the- got that perfect field-ripened one. Yeah. And then what do you do? Yeah, exactly. So you have to and so you box. buy that. And when I had a child at home... It was fine. I would IQF them, right? So you buy the big flat, you, t- you haul them, you cut them whatever size that you want, you put them in the freezer, and you individually freeze them, and then put them in a Ziploc, and then you just pull out 10 strawberries if that's what you need for the kid's uh, yogurt shake or, well, think, or something like it's... that. So that's, that's when I had a, a kid, I did. Now they sit in the freezer, and they get frostbit and never get used because I'm always buying the fresh fruit of the season. Correct. So what do you do, chef? Well, once you put them in the freezer, you take them out and put them in a good, thick sandwich bag so they don't get freezer burn. And then but they you... still collect frost. At oh, least they in do my collect a little bit, yeah. yeah. But anyway, the, those are definitely good for smoothies this time of year. You know, if you want to do a smoothie in the morning, instead of having uh, toast, two sausages, some bacon, and three eggs... You know, you do a nice fruit smoothie, and it's probably a lot healthier for you. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you want me to eat 10 strawberries instead of toast, two sausages, and bacon? Well, strawberries and bananas. Unlikely. Oh, strawberries, bananas, and blueberries in the morning are a lot better for you. But anyway, strawberries. So well, I've done the same thing. I've done half a flat. But when I come home, the first thing I do is process those strawberries because I know I'm not going to get to it just like you do. And... The first thing I do is I keep one pint of the least ripe on the counter, cover it with a napkin, and then leave it there so the fruit fly don't get around it, and nothing gets on it. And also I know that I have at least a day left of life for those strawberries to be ripening. So that's one thing I do with that. With that. And then the other one, I process them, cut them, and I put them in sugar right away and a little bit of lemon juice, and then toss them on the counter and leave them overnight covered with plastic wrap and put them in the fridge overnight. The next day I, make, I cook that very slowly and I have this wonderful big chunk of strawberry jam. Mm. And I put that in the fridge and in the next two weeks, I guarantee you, every time I have a piece of toast, I'm big, big, thick layer of that strawberry on top. So the natural pectin in the strawberries is what's kind of thickening things up. Yeah, and the bit. lemon juice, you know, you put a little mm. bit of lemon and that makes that reaction and it's, it's just beautiful stuff and I mean, if you want to get further, you can put it in the jar and, and seal it and put it away. But it's just so beautiful because that flavor is there, which is you don't find that any other time of the year, that strawberry flavor that we have from Washington ripe strawberry. You don't find that any Anywhere, other time of yeah, the year. It's true. 
This is when we need to eat strawberries. So, yes. I love them sliced up, uh, just as, as simple as possible, over a bowl of vanilla ice cream. Yeah, yeah. If I was going to have a strawberry treat, that to me is what? Uh, right. The vanilla ice cream, not strawberry ice cream, vanilla ice cream with fresh, beautiful Washington strawberries on top. Take a little bit of honey graham cracker and crumble it no. right on top of that. No. Ooh, a little crunch. A little crunch. <laughs> It's nice, too. <laughs> you know what works like for that crunch uh, also is if you take crisp topping and you bake it on its own. Yeah. Right? It's almost like baking granola in a funny way. but That's just, a great idea. It, just, uh, it lasts in a, in a little quart container for a week. It right. stays uh, crunchy. Just pop it right over top. So another thing, too, is with those strawberries, you can also add fresh herbs. You know, there's a lot of fresh herb Talk in the garden. Talk about that. Talk about that and making so it savory, because I struggle in the savory world tarragon, with strawberries. strawberry, and a dash of red wine vinegar. So I've got my cut strawberries. You cut your strawberry, you put a bunch of chopped tarragon in it, a little bit of sea salt, and some red wine vinegar. Mm-hmm. And you toss that on the counter. And that goes really well with yogurt. You take a yogurt... A raw yogurt, you know, like, a, uh, I mean, not a, a The whole audience is looking at you a little cockeyed right now. Why? They're nobody's excited. looking. Nobody's They're looking excited. at me. They're excited. <laughs> oh, that's excited. I thought you just said, like, cockeyed, like, they don't like the idea. No, you take that, and then you drizzle a little bit of honey on top, and you have a wonderful breakfast. Mm. And it's really, really good. It's very, you know, the strawberries, when they macerate, to me, I think it's, it's the only way to quickly save the strawberries, to macerate them either in sugar or savory or whatever, because otherwise they will mold overnight. I mean, they, they go really fast. It's full of sugar, and it ferments like that. So mm-hmm. um, you could also do kombucha, you know, make your own kombucha. With, you just take the strawberries, and you leave them with a little bit of sugar and, or honey on the counter, and they will ferment with a little bit of vinegar, and then you just add seltzer to it, and you have a, a seltzer kombucha. You know, it's kind of idea. Mm-hmm. But... That's not my kind of drink, so I don't normally do that. That's uh, our pr- our producer Pamela. Uh, she just got a big grin on her face because I like much better to do the idea. So you don't have to add a mother to the the vinegar is is all you have to add. Well, it will ferment on its own because you leave it on the counter at the wild yeast sixty five seventy degrees. It will ferment. Mm-hmm. It will it will it will do its own fermentation. It will start to, you know, you start seeing it, and it when you taste it too, it starts having that little. Um, Picant, you know, it's like you can taste it when it starts to fizz. Yeah. What other herbs do you like? I mean, some people are very. It's like cilantro. Tarragon is sometimes like cilantro basil, for basil people. Basil is like everywhere I, in my garden. Anise hyssop, I think, would be a Anise good one with hyssop. strawberries. Um, I also have. Um, what do I have? Uh, lemon verbena. Mm-hmm. So lemon verbena is not something I like to eat, but it's something I like to season with. So you just take the branch with the leaves on it, and you put it with the strawberry, so you can remove it the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, once it's macerated. But it, it gives a lemon and strawberry. Lemon lightly with strawberry, like you zest lemon, and you put that into your strawberry, a little dash of vinegar and salt, and you let it macerate. It's really a delicious flavor. Orange, too, does well. And then, of course, you can marry that with... Um, we're just starting the blueberry season in Washington. Mm-hmm. I just got my first pint from a friend at Woods Creek in Monroe. It's a U-Pick farm. I go every year. I'm going in August. And they just brought us last night. We met them. And we had our first pint of blueberry, local blueberry. Mm-hmm. So uh, look. That's, that's awesome. Uh, when you can, that's one of the great things about our season, right, is that right. when you can transition, okay, we've had six weeks of strawberries. I'm kind of done with those. 
Let's do blueberries, plums, apricots, right. peaches, nectarines. I mean, it's like we're so blessed all the way through the summer to have a <sighs> cascade of fruit and this that, year, uh, hits our shelves. This year, because we're three weeks behind on schedule of everything, we never really have strawberry that far in the end of July. Mm-hmm. Normally, it stops about you know, mid-July. That's about the extent of it. And then it starts again on Labor Day weekend, kind of you know, beginning of September, you get the second crop. Normally, we don't have strawberry this time of year. So it's very rare to have strawberry and blueberry kind of like matching each other. But just like peony and, and uh, Kathy is amazed by the fact that we have peonies and we have dahlias at the same In time this July, year. Yeah. Well, it sounds amazing. like next week the heat's going to take care of that. I, I had to drop a letter off uh, at one of my uh, neighbor's house uh, a couple of mornings ago. And it was early. It was like 6.37 in the morning. I was just going to pop it on their porch. But she was out picking her blueberries for her yogurt uh, oh. uh, in her inner robe in the front yard. Like she was all embarrassed and everything, but she was out just picking them away. And all of our blueberries at our house, it, we can't get them. The birds are too fast. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, they are jumping right on them. The, the other thing I would say is with strawberries before we leave this is that instead of going to like these shops where you see the strawberries, this big, big, enormous strawberries dipped in chocolate, just melt a bowl of chocolate and dip the fresh ones yourself. Yeah. Because the other ones are not edible. And by the way, those freeze also. You can actually freeze those once they've been deep in chocolate. When you thaw them, they get funky, in my opinion. A little bit, but... A little bit, yeah. Better fresh. All right, can you make texturally excellent ice cream without a machine? We're going to find out when we come back on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. All right, we are back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. I'm happy to be back after a month gone, uh, traversing around the world a bit. Uh, everything you've read about airport madness is true. Uh, as I, as we did, you lose your luggage. Oh, of course, on both directions. Oh. <laughs> but my favorite part was my favorite. We're sitting in the the British Airlines uh, Dreamliner on the tarmac at Heathrow, and we can see our luggage out on the tarmac, literally just laying on the tarmac. And lots of it, like uh, maybe 500 bags are sitting there. And uh, and they get on the thing, and we've been waiting. We're already an hour late, and we've been waiting. And the guy, captain gets on and says, well, we have a choice. Uh, we can leave without the luggage because there are no luggage handlers available huh. to load the luggage. Uh-huh. Or we can try and wait for the luggage handlers, but our crew is going to time out, and we can go tomorrow. So do you want to leave without the luggage, or do you want to wait till tomorrow? Isn't it incredible, those choices? <laughs> so everyone said, leave, leave. That's amazing. So that's what we did. We left without the luggage. And, well, your uh, clothes were already used. So. I, was I know. They were all dirty anyway. <laughs> my clubs, my clothes. golf clubs were worn out. I was thinking of having a suitcase full of rocks just to see if that would get lost, just to see if they would lose that. I'm not sure what that means, Chef, but we're going to continue well, on to ice. Can You Make Excellent Ice Cream Without an Ice Cream Maker? And I think what's interesting, Pam, when you did this is is uh, you're not even using the most non-electronic ice cream maker. You're not using the hand churn. You're not using the frozen bowl in the KitchenAid. You're not, this is what literally, are you using? Tell us about the article, where you got it, and... What fascinated you by this? Because when I read the first one, uh, with the whipped cream and the condensed milk. Doesn't that sound perfect? It 
It does, sort of, yes. Yeah. Although the condensed milk has its own unique flavor, kind of like coconut milk to me. It has its own unique flavor profile. Yeah, it does. I know, I know. I've been trying to support Frankie and Joe's, but they're so coconut-based uh-huh. now that uh, everything tastes like coconut. Mm-hmm. Right. Of, right. In addition to the flavoring. Um, but I think for simple methods, when you're just going to add a fruit, the condensed milk and whipped cream sounds beautiful and fast. But the... Um, the conclusion of the article is if you... Where did you find the article? It was on handletheheat.com. Uh-huh. The author concludes that really the best way is to free, make your base, freeze it, and then puree it in Correct. one of your blenders. Exactly. And that's, that's how you get to the creamiest... Correct. I've done cream. that before. And then refreeze it or not? And then refreeze okay. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You put it in, a, in a, something like a food processor, like a RoboCoop kind of idea... It comes out very, very soft. It breaks everything that's icicle or whatever in there. And then you put it back in the freezer. And then you have a, in the next hour or so, you have a wonderful silky texture of ice cream. But yes. It's, uh, the, the second method they covered was the plastic bag method, which sounded ridiculously uh-huh. complex. <laughs> it takes like three layers of plastic bags and ice. You make your base and then create this bath. Right. Of ice with the different bags. Like, nope, not no, doing, not, not doing not, that. Not going there. So there's the freeze and stir method, but I always yeah. think of that being kind of granita-like. It is like granita, but if you can do it with ice cream, too. Uh-huh. The only thing is, like, like uh, Pam said, if you just freeze ice cream, there will be ice particles in there that will be formed because of the milk and the cream, mm-hmm. the water. So you just put it in the blender, and then you have now a smooth ice cream, and you refreeze it. And it, it will... Within an hour, you'll have a wonderful ice cream. Um, I, think, I think an ice cream maker is one of those tools in your house that, first of all, you need more space because that's another machine. But most importantly, I think the assessment is very simple. How often are you going to make ice cream in one year? Twice. And how big is your house? <laughs> and how big is your house? Your cupboards. I have an entire two-car garage that's full of kitchen equipment, so yeah, I have too. plenty of room. I have, <laughs> I have, I have, you a, use it? No. I have a, no. a catering company my in, my, in my garage. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so there's the, I think those are the real questions there. Right. Uh, before you get into this no machine ice making ice cream making is what do you have room for like correct uh you have these ones that came out maybe 25 years ago where you freeze the kind of gel bowl. filled bowl mm-hmm. and then you put it um into a simple little on, on a food processor here yeah. uh, we're sponsored by KitchenAid so I would always use a KitchenAid food processor uh and you know is that something that you have room in your freezer for right I ended up not having room for that. Right. You know, so I bought one of those little Italian stainless steel jobbers that were super expensive just right. because that's my nature. And then it sits in the cabinet and I never use it. Jackie once in a while used it. The problem with it is it's, it's a no. You, the bowl doesn't remove? The bowl, the bowl doesn't oh, remove. So you got to clean the ice cream oh. machine like in and out and yeah, blah, no. blah, blah, blah. It's like, give me a break. <laughs> I'm going to buy haagen That's not practical. <laughs> no, I'm with you. And, and I, uh, I think... Honestly, I think those balls, those freezing balls, use it once or twice a year. You just do it, you know, like you know you're going to go to the farmer's market on Friday. And, you know, on Thursday, you put it in the freezer. Friday, you go to the market. You buy those strawberries. You blend those strawberries. You make your ice cream base. You put it into the bowl and you churn it. You'll have a great ice cream for the weekend. 
you're not trying to open an ice cream store, obviously, otherwise buy an ice cream maker. You're not trying to. So, you know, it depends, again, on the space you have and on the. But in general, that ball is very sufficient. So if I was going to do the, this is uh, Tessa Aria's uh, uh, website. Uh, she's an influencer in the kitchen. Uh, and also she Look at a- you go with the influencer language. Influencer language. I love it. <laughs> Why do you love that? Uh, anyway, so her the method that she has, she has four different methods, three of which one was the, you know, the freeze the base, put it into a blender or food processor. Right. One was a freeze and stir. Right. One was the plastic bag, which we all said never are we ever ever going to do that right. but the easy one uh, it seems to me and the one that if you want to try a process before you go buy an ice cream machine to see if you like the, the end product i would do this one which is simply whip two cups of cream by hand or with an electric mixer so until stiff peaks right yeah so heavy cream i would use the heaviest cream you could buy yeah and if you look on the cream when you buy it at the store it's got percentage of butter fat in it right uh, and then slowly drizzle in a chilled can of sweetened condensed milk so while it's at its stiff peak, then you put in the milk. Add your desired flavorings or mix-ins. Uh, remove to an airtight container and freeze. I would try that before I bought an ice cream machine to see if that was something that I could live with. So the condensed milk is the key here. That's what stops it from freezing too, um, too hard too hard, and to freeze you know, all the water particles. So, uh-huh. so it binds it, and it, also the sugar content is so high that it doesn't, doesn't freeze as hard. Sugar. It's no, but just a condensed milk, which is, I found, I mean, that's not super sweet. Well, there is, isn't there quite a bit of sugar in the condensed milk? Yeah, I'm just saying, but it's only, that's only one third of the three cups of cream, you know, right, like right, right. dairy that but you're But it's, it's more than you normally would have in your ice cream, yeah. probably. That's, that's all. So, Pamela, you had some ideas on uh, flavorings that you would have done. She does simple things like, you know, add a teaspoon of peppermint oil and add a teaspoon of green or food green food coloring you know to make your and chocolate chips right to make your mint chocolate chip what is your favorite ice cream flavor if you were to make it maple walnut really (laughs) i'm a new england girl (laughs) hey you get the good the good walnuts your roaster walnut and you black walnut black walnut you roast them and you let them sit till they cool off and then put that in your ice cream then you put your maple si- good maple syrup. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I, would make a, I would make 100 batches of ice cream and never put a walnut <laughs> in it. Really? I just you don't like walnuts. don't care for them. Okay, what's maple your next pecan? favorite one so that I can have some? Uh, hazelnut. Blackberry. Okay, good. Although hazelnut, uh, I was inspired for this segment by Gelatiamo on 3rd mm-hmm. Avenue. She makes a spectacular, fresh, artisan gelato yeah. every day. And I had combo hazelnut and tiramisu this week. That was mind-blowing. Her texture yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right on. It's right on. But I can eat nut ice cream like that, where the nuts are literally powdered. Yeah. And then, so, like, it's just part of the smooth texture. But the chunks of walnuts or the chunks of pecans is not my favorite thing. So remember those cherries, I was, those uh, strawberries I was macerating in sugar? Mm-hmm. You put that in an ice cream. You, know, you, take the, you take the syrup, you remove the syrup, you take the strawberries and you put them in your ice cream at the last minute and toss them together. So when you're eating your vanilla ice cream, you have little chunky kind of, mm-hmm. not chunky, but bites of strawberries, whole strawberries into your ice cream. 
and and I would say that's a good way to do your fruit before you put it in ice cream because right. then, you know, fruit has a lot of water in it and doesn't right. freeze like an ice cube in the middle of your creamy ice cream. Right. You don't right. want to put just strawberry into your ice cream because right. that's going to turn it into that ice crappy stuff. Ice it's not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. So what flavor are you going to make, Tom? Uh, well, I'm in, I was inspired by Terry's uh, tarragon strawberry vinegar. Yeah. And when I was in Scotland, I had a blue cheese uh, walnut ice cream that... Stop it. Possibly the worst thing I've ever oh. eaten. <laughs> so I'm going to somehow uh, try and get back to a spot where I could live. Would you like some brie? <laughs> <laughs> it was horrific. They thought they were so cute, but it was horrific. What a terrible concept. <laughs> All right. Can you make sticky ribs in the oven or do you have to have a barbecue? This is a arm wrestle when we come back this is going to be hand-to-hand combat i'm just might get one of your cookbooks out be careful okay on cairo radio it's the hot stove society show 97.3 fm all right and we're back here in the hot stove society kitchen on cairo if you've never been in to a class here at the hot stove you owe it to yourself to come join us sometime absolutely it's really fun um when Chef Annie's up here, it gets a little dicey because she uh, has a hard time controlling her language uh, because she gets so into it. She is, I think she's very sweet. She's, she's powerful. She's, she's very powerful, powerful for yeah. sure. She puts on her Edna Mode hat, and that things, things are all over at that point. She's invincible. We're back, and we're going to talk about sticky finger ribs. Okay. And we're also going to uh, – Pamela is convinced that you don't need a charcoal grill – to make delicious ribs at home. And I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. That you, no, don't, you don't need a charcoal grill to no. make delicious ribs. But if you ribs. had one, <laughs> I think it's, it's a good tool to use. I agree. And I know she has one because I gave it to her. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gorgeous. And I use it. And it's good. Okay. So go back to your story on the ancho molasses ribs that you made. And the fact that you put that in the midst of a story where you're saying you don't need a grill. And yet you found the need to finish on the grill. I think one of the uh, most important things that I've started to learn from you 40 years in is some meat needs to be low and slow. Uh And so I'm concerned on the grill about controlling my temperature for that length of time Mm -hmm. to keep it low, but for a long time, which is why I, I rely on low and slow in the oven and then you get the smoky burst at the end and finish them on the grill mm-hmm. with the sauce. Mm-hmm. But if you were to just go low and slow in the oven, I think Chef would, would agree that you could actually finish there and have a delicious product, right? Yeah. If, especially if you're buying, say, a smoky barbecue sauce. Oh, like, what like, one would you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, my entre molasses has no smoke no flavor smoke. in it. Like most of the commercial sauces out there, Stubbs, all those have some liquid smoke in them. Yeah. And so they... You can, get, you can get a little bit of that smoky flavor from the, the style of barbecue sauce that you choose to use. You can also put a little wood, just a little bit of wood chip in your oven in a what? container. Yeah, you put a little bit of wood chip in your oven, and it will create smoke in your oven, and you'll have smoke on your ribs. It's it, not that It creates a lot of things in your oven, just so oh, yeah. you know. I was like, you know, yeah. that sounds so If you've ever looked inside of a smoker, they are full of soot and uh, yeah. dirt. You're and, not doing that every day. You just do it a couple of times a year. But, okay. but it doesn't go away unless you clean your oven. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, you clean your oven. 
Wait, what? what You're heck? supposed to clean You're them? supposed to clean your oven. I know. I was just looking at Pam. I was like, yeah, when was the last time you cleaned your oven? Um, Mike does it. So if you're going to do it in the oven, you're going to uh, kind of slow roast them, like you said, 225, 250, three or four hours, a rack of baby back ribs. And then um, you can come out and you can do your Asian-style mm-hmm. ribs, which is uh, maybe five spice and honey and maybe some soy sauce and however it is that you like them, some right. rice wine vinegar. Reduce it down and then glaze them right on top. Or you could do the Dijon mustard, rosemary, uh you know, brushed all over your Did ribs. Did you just put a further French accent yes, into your French accent? I did, because the Dijon mustard. And I love the way you did that, <laughs> Alors, chef. You had, you had to put that in. So, <laughs> see, I don't hear my accent, so I don't think I have one, so I have to add so it. So you have to add it. I love that. That was awesome. <laughs> so a mustard glaze. Yeah. So, you mm. you know, when your so, ribs So how do you like, cook the ribs? So your ribs are just like salt and pepper. The way I do my ribs is I put salt and pepper, leave it on the counter. I always leave my meat on the counter to cook, to macerate a little bit. I call it macerate with the salt and pepper, fresh thyme, and I leave it on the counter for about an hour. Then I put it in the oven, 225, like you said, between 225 and 250. And then let it it cook all the way up to almost ready. Which is what? What temperature would you say? My guess is somewhere around 160. Oh, no, no, no. 125, 130. That's where I go, like medium rare. Oh, so you take it to that. I take okay. it to that. Right. And then I take, uh, I have a, a Dijon mustard, uh, rosemary, thyme, and pepper. And I put that, I take a brush and I brush that all over my ribs. Now I put it back in the oven at about three, 275, 300. So it's a little bit higher overheat. And I finish it like this. And then the mustard crust on top of your, you know, it, it crust on top of your ribs. And, and you have mustard. And if you were to put a, thermometer stick in there i would say we're looking at 165 yeah 165 170 Once, somewhere no, in that area 165 yeah. is enough yeah. because when you take them out you let them rest then you cut them and put them on the platter and serve that and it's it's nice because that that little crust of dijon mustard is yes i had i've never had mustard encrusted ribs and i i want to experience I, that i do that with very fine uh, cotelet of pork you know really fine pork chop that's my mom does that. That's the first thing she did when I went to France. Mm-hmm. She's like, do you want some pork chop gris? I'm like, yes. They call that grillade. They just, mm-hmm. they just macerate those pork chop overnight and then throw it on the grill. And it takes, I mean, it cooks in like, in five minutes you get pork chops. Because mm-hmm. it's already. That's not the one you're going to take to 165 or 175. That's. No. You want those at medium. Yeah. I mean, the health department would never say that. But for me at my house, when I cook it for myself. Yeah. We're looking at 135 yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in that territory, 135, Absolutely. Yeah. You're, not, you're not 175 on that because that would be chew leather. Right. That's the problem with those pork loins these days. They're so, they're so uh, lean that you can't overcook them or you end up with, with chew leather. Yeah. Tom, will you go back to the meat that you're buying for these oven-roasted ribs? Sure. Pork, so baby back? or You can do anything, any and all of the above. All those are interchangeable. I think the important part is what Chef said about the temperatures, right? So when you when you get to the end. But if you're buying spare ribs, uh, you often see in the store these days St. Louis ribs. So uh, St. Louis ribs are spare ribs with the tips cut off so that it's a it's a long rectangular rack. Uh, and there's no... Like and a, it's really good because it's less whole... bones and more meat. Yeah, although on the tips in that area down there, that, that meat laps over to the, to the bottom of those tips. And so you right. see burnt ends sometimes in a, in a barbecue joint, and that's that tips that cut off 
so that when they do their ribs, they sell you the ribs, they, they're pretty even ribs. Right. So anyway, so uh, baby backs. It's interesting today because baby back ribs have become so popular. Uh, it used to be uh, forever uh, that, the baby, that the ribs were half the price of pork loin, right, of that center cut pork loin. But now everyone wants the ribs. And so the ribs are now oftentimes 2 or $3 more expensive than the pork, the boneless center cut pork loin. I know, uh, which you, you're not a fan of. I'm not a fan of. Uh, but the, it, I'm also not a fan of right now when you buy baby back ribs, what are you going to do if you're a butcher, if you're a pig company, a pig farmer, and you know that the baby backs are going to bring in $7 a pound? You're going to keep more bone on it. You're going to keep more of that loin on the baby backs yep. because you're getting more money for that. And so you're seeing these baby back ribs now that are, sometimes are an inch thick chunk of meat at the and end. And the problem is that is still lean meat on there. So when you cook them, the, the, the traditional meat on a baby back rib in between the bones is nice and juicy and yeah. it renders and it, it melts. And But that chunk of loin on the top that they've left because they're getting more money for it now is dry and gross. So and if you know what you're doing, just take a knife, run it through, cut that piece off, put it in your freezer, and then use it for Good ground, ground beef or put it in a pasta. Next time you're making a pasta, take it out of the freezer you can cube it and sear it quickly and or then put it in your pasta or pound whatever. Pound it out and bread it and make schnitzel out of yeah. it. Yeah. Or grind it and make a you know, little patty and like a breakfast patty. Mm-hmm. But and then uh, just before we have to run, uh, country-style pork ribs are literally the pork butt, the pork shoulder cut up into ribs. And that bone in the country-style pork ribs is the blade bone from the shoulder. Right. What we consider the, like the rotator cuff bone. And those are delicious. I love the cartilage. All right. When we come back, it's Laura Kleist time here. She's the founder of an, of a Intentionalist uh, for a couple of segments. And, uh, of course, we're going to finish the day with a Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge, of which I'm not feeling very good about for myself today. Oh. I know. I, I, I lack confidence today, which is unusual when it comes to that Think particular golf. challenge. Think golf. Think golf. On Cairo Radio, you're listening to the Hot Stove Society Show, and we thank you. 97.3 FM. Ready, set, to come back for our second hour here of the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. Pam, you have jam-packed the, the show once again. Woo. Lots of interesting topics and, and uh, lots of controversy. Grill or no grill? <laughs> churn or no churn on your ice cream? But we're not going to be controversial about supporting Laura and Intentionalist. That's for sure. Why not? We welcome Laura Kleist, founder of Intentionalist, for a couple of moments here on the Hot Stove Show. And we had some time to chat in between the break to realize that of our shared history and shared stories and life. And, and she's a like 100% local. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Laura, welcome to our show. Thanks welcome. so much for having me. So let's, uh, let's get the Intentionalist right out in the open here. So... Uh, I know as a company, we have become more intentional about how we do our business, about where we buy our products and things of that nature. Uh, And uh, it was probably as a result of some of the things going on in our country over the last five years that we became more intentional about our process. I mean, we spend millions and millions and millions of dollars every year to bring food in, on on labor, to rent, you know. and, And so sometimes you just have to step back and say, okay, I'm spending this money either way. Where am I spending it? And who am I spending it with? And I think our customers do the same to us. Like, you know, they intentionally come to spend with us, spend time with us, spend their dollars with us. And so 
that to me is what you're all about. And maybe is that what you're thinking in your your head? Absolutely. So intentionalists began with the simple truth that where we spend our money matters and that everyday decisions about where we eat, drink, and shop are an opportunity to connect with the people and stories behind the main street small businesses in our community and vote with our dollars to ensure that they continue to bring all of the tremendous value that they do. Vote with your dollar is for sure a good saying. Whatever you buy is whatever you support. I mean, so how do you go about it? How do you uh, uh, teach people to do this? Or how do you, what's your company all about? Give us the rundown. So Intentionalist began with an intentional list of Main Street small businesses owned by women, people of color, families, military veterans, indigenous people, members of the LGBTQ community, and also just generally small business owners that neighbors know, appreciate, and support. And also need to discover, because when you live in a very big city, I think it's very hard to keep up with all the changes that happen in your neighborhood. At least, it, you know, like for example, if you live in, in Beacon Hill or in Columbia City, in the last 10 years, there's been drastic changes. It's hard to keep up with what's going on. One of the things that I had observed over many years was that on the one hand, there was a growing interest on the part of people uh, to be more intentional, to be more responsible, to be more sustainable in the decisions that we make. And yet when it came to resources focused on local businesses, the emphasis was always on what, not who. Right. And to your point, Thierry, when you look at what small business owners bring to their community beyond the food that's on the plate. It's the stories of why they started their businesses, sometimes to share culture, sometimes out of necessity. Um, Mm -hmm. My maternal grandma was a small business owner. Uh, She grew up on a sugarcane plantation on the island of Kauai, eventually was able to own and operate an appliance repair shop with her husband, And that was transformational. So we know and we have incredible history in this country of the impact that small businesses can play in providing economic stability, economic mobility. But then on the other side, I started Intentionalist because I noticed there was a gap between our good intentions and our ability to easily take action. So on the one hand, Intentionalist began as a directory that makes it easy not only to find a local coffee shop or restaurant or bakery or ice cream destination, I love ice cream, (laughs) but also to be intentional about learning who are the people behind that business and how can you connect with, support, and build community. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And and I think about generational wealth at the same time because – uh, these these immigrants that come in and and by the seat of their pants get these businesses started or work in another business to earn enough money to get their own business started whatever however that process works for them uh, the 
when I look at my own life and my own family, and the second, I didn't come from a lot of money, but I certainly came from the middle class, I will say. Uh, but the next generation, my daughter has a whole different lifestyle and wealth package in her life than I ever had when I was a little kid. So I see that in, happening in immigrant families, too, where the, the, fa- the parents work for the benefit of their children in a way that we forget sometimes. Absolutely. I would say immigrant families. And yet we're also seeing some wonderful examples here in Seattle of folks who are born and raised here who found their way uh, into the culinary profession. And as they have worked their way up through their career, see an opportunity to share their family's story, their family's culture, but also absolutely uh, to have a pathway mm-hmm. to intergenerational wealth. You know, one of the guys that you have supported directly, Tom, is Trey Lamont. And I think that mm-hmm. Trey's story is fascinating. Oh, yeah. Definitely a good story. Yeah, he just makes me angry, though, because he is so handsome, <laughs> so well-spoken, so, so fun. fun. He's just like the perfect man. And it's just, I feel, I feel small with Trey. Hey, it's the next generation. They picked up what oh, you did. He's so off. cool. I like him a lot. They so. took everything you did plus adding to it. I oh, know. Dude. And then you'll have to incorporate taekwondo That's into right. your uh, really, pre-cooking really. regimen. Okay. Uh, more with Laura when we come back. And we're going to dive into some of the stories that maybe you could share with us of the small businesses around here that you've helped during the pandemic. And uh, as you even mentioned to Terry, understanding, you know, why was his restaurant named Lule? Well, it's his hometown, right? It's a bring, and bringing and sharing some of those things through your business. Right here on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. All right, we're back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove at the beautiful Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. Thank you for joining us. We've got uh, the rest of our second hour to come. Finishing up with our Food for Thought uh, Tasty Trivia Challenge. Don't forget that. Uh, Laura Kleiss is here, and she has been talking about her company called uh, Intentionalist. And how do you make money, Laura, uh, with Intentionalist? Uh, because you can't continue your, your, your process unless you have funds to do that. So, I'm really glad that you asked that question because our mission from the start has been intentional and so is our business model. So as I started to talk to Main Street small business owners as we were getting started, one of the things that became really clear is that most tech-enabled small business resources operate on a relatively extractive business model where consumers like us uh, receive incentives that oftentimes are directly off the backs of small business owners who have very thin margins. So So an example of that in my mind would be, say, DoorDash or something like that, where uh, you have a a nice little Cambodian restaurant who's trying to make it, especially during the pandemic, and DoorDash comes along and, you know, (laughs) negotiates somewhere between 18 and 30 percent of the revenue that they're trying, you know, desperately to make and it's just onerous, right? It's a tech yeah. extraction is what you just talked I mean, about. Yeah. Convenience comes at a cost. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is from a place of asking the question, who benefits and who pays? The reality is that when small businesses thrive, 
we all benefit. It isn't just the small restaurant. And where value is created, there's the opportunity to explore a willingness to pay. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done incrementally over time is experimented with coupling our underlying directory, which is free, with different channels for incentive that companies, local government, Seattle professional sports teams pay to activate. So, for example, during Pride Month, all of the Seattle major sports teams helped pay for incentives encouraging their fans to visit and spend money at LGBTQ-owned small businesses. And then they also underwrote a discount on gift cards to LGBTQ-owned small businesses through Intentionalist. We don't charge a commission fee, so the businesses are receiving uh, 100% of the sales. The teams pay for uh, the discount gap, and then they also pay with us. They also pay us as a channel for uh, fan engagement. So you're getting the corporate world to pay for you as opposed to the little guy to pay for you. Yes. Which is, yeah, not, which is a not much just better. you, but for them on in yeah across the board. Yes, I mean, so a hundred dollar gift card, the little restaurant gets a hundred bucks, which exactly. is just not the case in, I mean, anywhere. Even Mastercard Visa takes three yeah. percent right, right off the top, right? So, I mean, and we invite the community to chip in, and what we've seen is that by and large, when we explain that. Our focus is on trying not to maximize our own profitability, but to ensure that small businesses can benefit. We invite consumers to chip in a little bit to help us cover our costs, and by and large, they do. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we think about our business model is certainly multi-stream, but as we're able to continue to grow our directory, our marketplace, and our relationships with third-party stakeholders, companies, community-based organizations, colleges and universities, local government, we've identified where we're able to create value for each of those stakeholders. Right now, we're working on a curated guide for Seattle University uh, that will serve as uh, the, the foundation for their capacity to encourage students, staff, faculty, and visitors to get to know and support local businesses. We've had the opportunity to do something similar with the Seattle Storm around Climate Pledge Arena. We work with Visit Seattle. And so kind of the way that I think about this is if we zoom back and we think about where are the opportunities where people are looking to spend their money anyway, are looking for a more unique and meaningful way uh, to experience where they are, whether they're visitors or locals. And then who are the different parties that might help uh, accelerate and encourage and incentivize intentional spending? And how can we be that solution? The port of Seattle at the airport, get all the international travelers to come in. Is there a, a case example, a case study, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if, but if that of a small business that's really benefited from intentional spending that uh, maybe didn't have it before where you you kind of they made your list or they you know you identified them and is there some good examples of that or is it just all fortunately there are so many yeah Um, (laughs) no and and i say that because when people 
ask what we're most proud of. It isn't the collaboration with the Seattle Sounders or the Seahawks or the Storm. Um, it isn't the, the recognition that we've received from you know, Seattle Times or Puget Sound Business Journal. We are a Seattle tech startup. We're a social purpose corporation. But we have the trust of Main Street, diverse-owned small businesses. And one example that I would point to is a wonderful spot called Emma's Barbecue in Hillman City. You can head to our website to learn more about Tess. Tess is a grandmother. She started Emma's to pay homage to her mother, uh, who was a cook and owned the original Emma's. Her grandchildren help with the operation. And we were introduced to Tess. She has also done a lot for foster kids in the community uh, through the nonprofit Treehouse. And the first time I tried Tess's food, I was blown away. Uh, her brisket is on point. And the second thing I learned about Tess is that she's a huge Seahawks fan. So last year, when the Seahawks called asking for some recommendations uh, for restaurants that could pop up at the Boeing Classic Golf Tournament, I immediately thought of Tess. As folks came through her line at the golf event, they were as struck by her story and her food as I was. And she was invited to then pop up at Lumen Field at a Seahawks game. Wow. Fans loved her food so much that that opportunity was extended throughout the season. And at the end of the season, it was extended to Seattle Sounders games as well. And so when I look at what it is that we all can do to help businesses like Tess, I mean, she's done all of the hard work but we've been able to help amplify her story, make connections, and then integrate her into our gift card network, into our marketplace, so that ultimately what we're doing, we're doing as a community. Yeah, you grew up from a small business to a, a sound business, which is good. Well, and you create generational wealth. You, yeah. start, to, you start to take people. Giving uh, her more... a platform she didn't have. So Emma's Barbecue in Hillman City. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Well, so it, it's so fun to listen to your story and to listen to how we can make a difference, a difference throughout our communities, understand the stories of our small business people. And uh, so if you want to know more, you go to the Intentionalist the website. It's not The Intentionalist. It's Intentionalist. Intentionalist.com. Okay, perfect. Laura Kleiss has been our guest. Uh, awesome work. We yeah, look forward to being uh, partners. I see you've got some Boon Boona coffee. Uh, Absolutely. Over at the Dahlia Bakery. We were intentional about that, and uh, it's been a great partnership for the last couple of years. So we love that. Up next, summer snacking on hand pies. What are hand pies? On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. Here we are. I, that was an inspiring segment, I thought, the that last was couple of segments. It's super just, just super thinking. Just, just makes you think a little bit. So. Yeah. And I love the idea that um, that you can, when you go to a restaurant, especially a small little uh, restaurant, I don't care if ethnic or otherwise, uh, and recognize some of the story behind why that restaurant's there is, is really kind of fun. You know, uh, everyone has a story, and it's not just about how you cook a steak. And I think that's, that's the explanation of community. I think people really, really woke up and 
realize how much we need those restaurants. Uh, when COVID came around and all those restaurants closed down, people were crying. They were like, oh, my God, what's going on? We don't have a community anymore. We need to get that back. All right. Let's jump right into hand pies. You were just singing a song, which I never heard before. And you suggested through the, your energy that I should know this song. I was saying hand pie instead of hand jive. Everybody knows that song. No, I don't know that song. Oh, my God. No, it was in the summer of 72 in Nall. <laughs> exactly. Famous, uh, famous. Famous summer. It's time to snack on hand pies. And Pamela, you have a favorite bakery I know you walk to from your house. I do. Uh, and it's at 85th uh, and... and um, Third. Third of up there in Crown Hill neighborhood, Loyal Heights. Greenwood. Greenwood. No. It's over by the Fred Meyer on 85th. Oh, there. Urban Gather. I'm just going to say. No, wait a second. That is not Greenwood. No. On with the hand pies. Okay. Uh, they make the best in the city. And Did they take the recipe out of my book? We're going to for our class. Oh, we're going okay. to do your carrot filling. <laughs> Um, but and the then sh- you can compare and tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but this place, it's the most unusual uh, coffee shop. There are more should do this. They have a whole team of bakers there. You know how many shops you go to? They're just pulling frozen baked right. goods out of the freezer and thawing <clears throat> them. This has a staff of incredibly talented bakers. Um, every Sunday I have the buckwheat fig bar. But... They do savory hand pies now mm-hmm. with an impeccable flaky crust, little uh, flake salt on top. Yesterday brought in for the team their asparagus, and then also they do a sausage one. So it changes seasonally. Mm-hmm. But I think it's such a perfect summer food because it's just this great size Bites. snack on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, snack. And it has a, a long history. You know, hand pies in England or in Australia, these meat pies that they would take out on a tractor you know when they're out doing the fields they can pack them and have them for lunch later you know there's a long history of of that style of that of, kind of, of thing yeah. yeah but it's also you know the history over there when i have them in england uh, it's a very much a lard history and a very heavy the ones that we made when i first made hand pies it was a business idea that i had for starbucks I don't know if you remember That's that. You right. were our CEO at the time. I and, forgot about that. Yeah, and I was thinking I, I made these savory ones that I thought with a whole wheat crust that Starbucks could put in their case and have a delicious, <laughs> fresh, organic hand pie. They never sold. They're a little <laughs> too big for us, apparently. <laughs> Who knew? Who's too big for you? Starbucks might be a little oh, bit. No. They might be a little too big. Uh, when they were looking at our croissants, I said, well, how many do you need to make? Well, so, well on the West Coast, we go through... Two million a day. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Oh, boy. I'll start rolling yeah, out the yeah. dough. Well, anyway, it just never went anywhere. But I did put the recipe in the in our book, the uh, Dahlia Bakery book. Uh, so but- I, I would think that hand pie to me, because the feeling, obviously, you, the, the feeling is a very important thing, obviously. But to me, I think it's all about the dough. The, yes. The, the, the pastry you're going to have is so important because it can be from sticking to the roof of your mouth to extremely dry and no, no buttery flavor, no fat flavor. To me, that you go through the whole spectrum of that. When you get the perfect dough, I think the rest is just cakewalk. The, the dough's the critical function. Because in, in a hand pie, you don't want it to be super greasy. No. no you want it to feel clean, I think. But can well, you, you want get it to feel that? clean, but you want to t- when you're eating it, you still want a little bit of that fat in the back. Yeah, you want so, to taste it. Right. Yeah. 
Just like on a good croissant, you know, you nice. just you want it to be nice and buttery, but you don't want it to be greasy. Right, exactly. So there's there's a little fine line, in my opinion. Part of the way, in my mind, that you get there is with the egg wash that you put on the hand pie. Correct, that seals you bake it. it. And it kind of seals it in a little bit. And makes that nice little crust, too. Because you have to put slits in it, right, when you're baking them, because you, you, don't, you want the steam to release. But... Uh, but I love them, and I think they're a great lunchbox thing. Pop tarts, right, are the classic Kellogg's hand pie. When you think about it, that's that's what it is. I don't think about it. Never, <laughs> never had it. You never had a pop tart? No, chef. You you enrage me. Why? Well, just because I want I've you to have all pie. of life's experiences. How about your pies? I don't need to go into pop tart. <laughs> what do I need that for? We did a tasting panel last summer with the natural one versus the yeah. pop. So you have had, and them. you weren't a fan. No, I, they were dead. Well, I've never had. It. I mean, I've never went to a store, bought it, and eat it. No, oh, never. Okay, that wouldn't even cross my mind. <laughs> so, um, are we landing squarely with pie crust as opposed to puff as a crust? For me, yes, I, I like because the pie that's crust. A, a quick, easy, also satisfyingly flaky. Yeah, if you use. Puff pastry in an emergency. Mm-hmm. You didn't have time to do the pie crust. The problem with puff pastry is it doesn't do well as a stuffer. You know, to keep it as a stuffer and then bake it, depends on what you put in it. But most of the moist stuff is going to ruin the first layers of the puff pastry inside. So that's so, why places like La Panier in the market, they use the, they use the uh, puff paste as a cup. Correct. And they put their broccoli filling in Correct. or their spinach filling in. That is a beautiful and treat. Because you yeah. can't seal the edges of puff paste. That's the problem, right? You, because you, you want the edges to rise. So it is almost a half inch, and that's where you get your thousand layers of Just like flakiness. you don't want to cover your croissant into a box with a lid, you don't want to do that because it's going to humidify the dough, and it's going to become mushy instead of staying crispy. It's the same concept. Puff pastry, like Tom was saying, it's layers, so if you put humidity in there, it just dies on its own. So there is, there are areas like over in Alsace or places like that where you get puff as a pizza base, and uh, it really, I have never been able to not have a little bit of the rawness in the center Correct. of the, you know, uh, the classic pizza ladiere, right, with, yeah. with the uh, anchovies and olives and a little tomato. It still is beautiful around the edges, but it can also get a little soggy in the center. Correct. But the actual recipe of a pizzaladier or any of this dough is nowadays that people use puff pastry, but it was never originally the puff pastry. It was always pâte brisée? No. It was, yeah, it was a pâte brisée mixed with, a, uh, with a, like a pie dough. It was, it was that kind of dough. It was not ever a puff pastry. Huh. It got changed to puff pastry because it's more practical. Easier. I did. I changed it to puff pastry. I yeah. made a million of them for catering. Yeah. yeah. Because it's easier and more practical and everything. But it's and you can buy the puff pastry sheets. Because puff pastry does not do well, again, as a, as a wrapper. It doesn't do well for that. So the pie dough recipe that never fails, where, where are you going to send us for that? Well, we can take a picture of the one in the book. Cause it, <laughs> it was, um, it was, I did it, you know, the filling is, was carrots and leeks and goat cheese, right? Savory. I think I did one with chard and feta and olives, if I'm not mistaken, or artichoke. I'm, I, I can't remember all the different... Uh, centers that I had made for that. Um, but uh, the whole wheat was intended to make it feel a little bit more like a sandwich, a more healthy version than mm-hmm. just a sweet uh, pie dough, right. say, so. No, I mean, it's, it's all in the, to me, I think it's all in the dough in all of those pockets, um, you know, wrap 
Uh, it's the same thing with the Mexican, uh, what do you call the Mexican? Um, empanadas? Empanadas, it's the same thing. I've had empanadas that were really good, and I've had empanadas that were dry. They were like, they were like so, so like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're ruining my inside. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and it's the same thing. I think the wrapper is very, very important. The dough is important. But of course, the feeling is also very important. So. It is. And, and, and go crazy. That's what I think yeah. on that. Uh, whether it's meat or non-meat, uh, go crazy and make some interesting combinations. Yeah. And then it's all the same crust on the outside. So Correct. I'm not sure, Pam, to answer your question finally, where to go, to go for the recipe. We could post the one from the Dahlia Bakery book, if you want, on our website. Uh, or what, Why you're looking at me quizzically. Oh, uh, just because the working with a pie crust, as we're learning from the chef that's teaching our next hand pie class, uh, demands some patience in keeping the butter cold. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can process it all in one sitting and get it done and get the perfect result. You've got to have some planning uh, to let the crust sit, mm-hmm. according to Ben Leonard. Well, I mean, they're all different school of thought because we remember a couple of weeks, uh, who was it that we were talking to and she was like, don't cool off the butter. And I was like, never even heard of that. Mm. So it was in the food processor too. So it's, it just, you just have to look for the recipe. Or have just, to come take a class with us. Yeah, take the class. When is the class? <laughs> when is the class? Uh, the 23rd. Of mm. July? Must be August. <laughs> Yeah, it says July here, but that that would be the today. That would be today. It must be August. Uh, next up, food for thought, rub with love, tasty tri- trivia, right here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society show. And we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen here in downtown Seattle in the beautiful hotel Andra. Uh, boy, we have a big prize today for our trivia challenge. It's uh, a jar of the smoky barbecue rub and two tickets to the 35th annual winemaker picnic on August 12th, donated by the auction of Washington wow, Wine. That is a, awesome. Somebody that got a some big s- prize today. Just, that's a great prize. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, rub with Love Tasty Trivia is brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Blends that I make right out there in Ballard. Uh, we make sauces, mustards, spice blends. And I, yesterday I made uh, uh, 10 pounds of chicken thighs with the new taco spice. Uh-huh. Oh, Yum. Really good. As chefs, we're always looking for unique ways to build flavor. And a pantry stock with spices is a valuable tool. Uh, you can find our rubs and sauces uh, all over locally. Uh, Bartels, Met Market, Ralph's Thriftway in Olympia. And Tracy's Roadside Produce in Enumclaw. And, of course, around the country or online. So thank you to the uh, Auction of Washington Wines for those two tickets. Uh, let's play, Pam. How do, we, how do we play? I forget. I've been gone so long, so I forget long. how to play. So long. Um, we're honored today to have Bridget Charters, our chef, uh, competing with Terry and Tom. And, and we he, know how she competes. She is tough. I'm a competitor. <laughs> She's very competitive. And each uh, competitor is going to get five questions. And there'll be a winner and a loser. Huh. <laughs> loser. All right, that's tough. In fact, there's usually two losers and only one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> correct. That math is elusive to There me. is no second All place. All right. You ready, Terry? Yep. Is bergamot the rind of a fruit of a dwarf variety of the Seville orange tree or a dessert pear? Bergamot is actually from the mint family, I believe. So, it's not? No. Citrus, for sure. 
So, so it go- is, so in fact, both. Uh, the rind of the fruit of the dwarf variety and a dessert pear. It's a dessert it's, pear? It's taken on two different... The same word means two different things in culinary applications. Number two. That would be a big zero on that. Is the Persian dish birani sweet or savory? Savory. Can you give us a little description? No. <laughs> rice. A lot of rice. Go figure it out. Rice with no, savory. garnish. And when you're at a table of people, you always grab first because... There's Get only the goodies. There's only so much there's goodies of in there. the goodies, <laughs> yeah. and then so much rice. Number three, what fish were falling from the sky in San Francisco last week? Man, I just took the New York Times quiz and I, I scored ten out of eleven. That was not in it. I have no idea what fish fell off from the sky. It was anchovies. The population is booming off the coast. Birds were harvesting them uh, greedily. Picked up too many. As they were taking him to their chicks and they were dropping on the houses in San Francisco. This is actually wow. a real story. <laughs> True story. <laughs> wow. Awesome. You've got the pictures are incredible. Wow. Anchovies on your roof. What is the sauce of the uh, mixed veg- minced mixed vegetable mix? Piccadilly. What is the sauce in that pickle of the minced <laughs> vegetables? <laughs> It's called piccalilli, and what is the sauce? Is there like some special spelling or something? <laughs> I guess I'm not sure. I have never it heard be, of it. You've never had piccalilli? No. Bridget, can you help him? Mustard and vinegar. I thought it was right up your alley. Piccalilli? Piccalilli. All right, I think I was over. Five. So are we over right now? <laughs> wow. No, I have won so far. <laughs> Napoleon III offered a prize in 1860 to one anyone. Dollar one dollar a for Louisiana. Is that what you're looking for? Uh, offered a prize to anyone who could produce a substitute for butter. Why? I have... What's the reason? They there ran out of cows. There was a terrible cattle They ran out of cows, yeah. Disease. Yeah. Disease. The cows were dying. That would be the only thing. Point five. <laughs> oh, he got there. Ouch. Damn, she's Ouch. Ouch. I think we should give him the full Ooh. point. Bridget? Yes, Pam. Good morning. Good morning. What plant does the spice mace come from? <gasps> mace, nutmeg. It's yes. the outside. Number two, because chicken don't have teeth, they must grind food in a different way. Whatever they ingest gets softened by gastric juices in the gullet, and then where does it go to get ground up? The gizzard. You are spectacular. I had no idea about this process. Well, you didn't? I, no. She grew oh, up on a this, chicken farm. And I grew up on a chicken farm. You did? Yeah. There's wow. stones in the gizzard that yeah, turn it into they, paste. Yeah. Wow. We give them oyster shells. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah. What did August Escoffier invent? The wheel. You can give either a food product or his contribution to well, the his, kitchen. He created the cookbook that is the process, was back then the process for hotel chefs for uniformity and cooking. The brigade, the first, it's called, yes. Yeah, the first cookbook and system for cooking. Yes, yes, very important. Number four, what are the layers in the delicious Hungarian dobas tort? I have no idea. Tort? Dessert? Mm-hmm. Hungarian? Can I guess? Yeah. Sure. Cream, yeah. cherry, chocolate. No. Okay. Cream and cream and chocolate. Top oh. with caramel. Oh. Very close. Point five. <laughs> no. 
whoa. I know, Terry. I'm sorry. Number five, what is a chimichanga? Chimichanga is an American-Mexican creation. It's essentially a deep-fried burrito. Exactly. What's her score, Chef? Four and a half out of five. Nice. She's only beating me by four points. (laughs) Oh, no. Three points, sorry. Mr. Douglas, five or six generations ago... Native people of this region ate a complex diet that changed with the seasons called first foods. These are staples they always relied on. Which one of these foods does not belong in this group? Salmon, nettles, camas bulbs, potatoes, and shellfish. Potatoes. Correct. Did you read that excellent series in the Seattle Times? I'm going to send it to you because I think it was while you were gone. Thank you for that. What? Um, ingredient number two. What ingredient is used to enrich the yeasted dough in brioche? What ingredient to enrich the dough? Egg yolks. Yes. What is in a foo young sauce? Well, I happen to have a recipe in my book. You do? I love crab cakes. You missed that one. <laughs> didn't yeah. read that recipe, Tom. I didn't read Thank that you one. So much for that. So uh, there's a difference of what you're saying there, because for me, the sauce on my egg foo young is spicy chili crisp, right? I, I love a little black bean chili sauce on it. In a Asian restaurant, typical like almond fried chicken or egg foo young, they make a brown sauce made from soy sauce and cornstarch and the uh, answer I was looking for was eggs and vegetable as the no, primary. No, that is the foo young. You're, you asked what the sauce was. But they, uh, all right. The source was describing the eggs as being the sauce. So I guess that we huh. have different interpretations. Yeah, I would, I've never, I've not seen that. So Google it. Egg foo young is an egg bind bound group of vegetables. I think I'll read your cookbook. Yeah, you should. Okay. I make a crab foo young Number <laughs> in my book. <laughs> Number four, please describe the dish Thermidor. Thermidor. Is it lobster Thermidor? Oh. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has a, it's a lobster that's uh, cut up and broiled, and it has a, a Mornay-style sauce, or like a, a thickened cream sauce uh, that's poured over top, of, put under the broiler to uh, glaze. Gratiné. Glassage. I haven't had lobster thermidor in a long well, time. I want to make it. It becomes gratiné. If you put no cheese in it, it's a glass. Glassage. Ah. Finally, is the Italian dish zuppa inglese sweet or savory? Zuppa inglese is uh, sweet. It's like very me. sweet. <laughs> Thank inglese. you. Can Who's the, the winner, Terry? Five out of five. Tom is coming back. Wow. Coming back strong. If you want to be part of our show, you can uh, join our community on YouTube Live every Friday morning at Tom Douglas & Co. Or buy a ticket to join us in the studio here at thehotstovesociety.com. We're live also. Uh, you're listening to us on Cairo. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. Also remember, if you miss any episode of Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite app. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.